Okay, let's go ahead and get started with a word of prayer if we could. Our Father, we do give praise to your name and thanksgiving for the uh, blessed opportunity to come together as the body of Christ. Pray that you would uh, illumine our minds this morning as we walk through the scriptures. Father, give us an understanding that comes only from above. And Lord, I pray that the saints would be edified by what we studied this morning, that you would be glorified and that you would communicate your truth. Father, I thank you for the, the Christmas season and the gift of the Lord Jesus Christ. We celebrate that this coming week. I pray that our hearts and minds would be set as you would have them to set, be set. Lord, that we would, uh, all through the week, be given glory to your name. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. This is uh, week number 28 in our study of eschatology. We're over in chapters 38 and 39 of Ezekiel. And so this morning I want to review just a little bit of what we've talked about the last two weeks. Just quickly go through that and then... Uh, we wound up last week in chapter 39, the, really the last four or five verses, trying to uh, determine exactly what's the right way to think about this. And so as we've looked at the, uh, this passage, chapter 38 and 39, which is all about a war in which all the nations come against Israel and God himself steps in and destroys the armies. And so as the, the question becomes, wh when was this war or when would this war be and how does it fit into the grand plan of God? And there were a couple of things that we noticed in the first time we looked at this, which was God's main reason for this war to occur in his plan. And that is the same reason that we see often in the plan of God. It was for himself, that his name might be magnified, that it might be sanctified, that he would be given glory and honor, that the nations would recognize who he is and that he is sovereign over the nations. And so that's the main reason for the war. And then we look further to see what's the motivation behind this war? How does this war come about? Who causes this war and whose uh, will is it based upon? And we saw that the scripture says that God puts hooks in the jaws of someone named Gog or a title called Gog and turns him around, which means turns him 360 de degrees and brings him, or 180 degrees, and brings him against the nation of Israel. And then there are other passages that says that he drives them on. But then there are other passages that say that Gog deceives in his mind an evil plan and that he um, considers how to go and plunder Israel. So it's um, God causing, but certainly those who are coming against Israel working out of their own will and their own desires and their own evil plans. Um, so those are the reasons why this war takes place. The, the main question in my mind, I mean, we know what happens because we'll walk through that. God details exactly what happens in this war. But the question is, when does this happen? And we've been thinking about that. Last time, we looked at several passages that, as you walk through them, some indicate that this happens at the beginning of the Millennial Kingdom. Some indicate that it happens at the end. And we looked at... Uh, chapter 38 and verse 16, where it talked about the last days, that this war happens in the last days. And then we turned over to Isaiah and to Micah and looked at passages there. Isaiah 2, the first verses, Micah 4, the opening verses, which say the exact same thing, almost verbatim. And it talks about the last days being a time when God reigns over the earth, literally, and that he's seated on his throne on the earth, and that there are things that are happening that we've never seen on the earth. There's peace, and there's um, lack of wars, and people take their armaments, and they beat them into tools instead of 
uh, warring items. So um, this is, I believe, speaking clearly in the Old Testament about the millennial reign, about the time during which Christ reigns. And so that's what the last days are. And it says this happens somewhere during that millennial reign. And then we look down in Ezekiel 38, verses 17 and 18, which uh, God asks the question, poses the question to God, are you the one whom the prophets wrote about? And so he doesn't answer that question. Um, I guess you could presume the answer is yes, um, but we don't know that. And so we turned over to Joel chapter 3, and we saw a passage that sounds very similar to what happens in Ezekiel um, and, and saw in that passage that it happened, this war that's described in, in Joel happens at a time when God is seated in Zion, which would be Jerusalem, a time in which um, he is literally reigning from Jerusalem. So, I mean, we can't be dogmatic, but that certainly sounds like during the millennial reign. Somewhere, I mean, it's a thousand years. Um, so somewhere during that reign or at the beginning or at the end, this war happens. And so again, an indication of that. But then in chapter 39 and verse 7, God says that because of this war, the earth will stop profaning his name. And we've seen that before when we were walking through chapters 34 through 36 we saw that God says, I'm going to act not for your sake, but for my sake, for my name's sake, so that people will quit profaning my name. And that action was the restoration of Israel, the salvation of the Jewish people. And we saw that clearly. So it, when is that statement that God, because of this war in chapters 38 and 39, is going to stop the profanity of his name? And so, is that happen a second time, or does it match up to what's in chapters 34 through 36? That's a question that we're trying to answer. When is this war? When does it take place? Or what does the scripture indicate when it takes place? So, you have these, these verses that seem to contradict one another or come at different times. Um, so, you have to walk through them and see what you think. And then... Um, in chapter 39 and verse 22, God says that, And the house of Israel will know that I am the Lord their God from this day forward. So does that mean they didn't know it before that? Or is this just a continuation of their realizing that God is for them? Has he been for them and they recognized it and now he just reinforces it as this war takes place? You could take it either way. Don't know which way to take it, right? It could be either or both. And so, again, that's not clear. There is not distinct in what it says. And then you run into the troublesome passage in chapter 39. And this is where we left off last week. And um, I just want to read this. And I, I want you to think in large terms, not in specific. Notice what he says here. He doesn't detail anything in these verses. It speaks kind of in an overall sense, and you'll see what I mean. Chapter 39 of Ezekiel, verse 25. And for you who weren't here at the beginning, I don't have a sheet for you this morning because my printer ran out of ink uh, at midnight last night. And so uh, I'll bring the sheets next week. You can just listen this week because mostly what we're going to have this week is me talking. And we have a little bit of scripture that we're going to look at, but not a lot. But this is one of the passages, 39:25. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Now I will restore the fortunes of Jacob and have mercy on the whole house of Israel, and I will be jealous for my holy name. They will not forget their disgrace and all their treachery, which they have perpetrated against me when they live securely on their own land, and with no one to make them afraid. When I bring them back from the peoples and gather them to the lands of their enemies, then I shall be sanctified through them in the sight of many nations. Then they will know 
that I am the Lord the God, their God, because I made them go into exile among the nations and then gathered them again to their own land. And I'll leave none of them there any longer. I will not hide my face from them any longer, for I will have poured out my spirit on the house of Israel, declares the Lord God. Now you notice in that passage, and this is important, that he doesn't detail anything. He speaks in very big terms that I brought... Uh, I made them go out of their land. I brought them back into their land. I blessed them. And uh, they'll no longer have to leave, and I won't hide my face from them anymore. Very large terms. Nothing detailed whatsoever. I'll come back to that a little later um, as we go through this. Now, um, you could take that to mean that this war happens to cause these things to happen, for God to bring them back to their lands and for him to be their God and they to be his people and that. Um, but I don't think that's what his think is talking about. So I, I thought about this a lot because I myself, when we started this, had not come to conclusions about when this war takes place. I, I could certainly make the argument at that point that it was at the beginning of the millennial reign and I could make the argument that it was at the end of the millennial reign. But it's, de- it's definitely during the millennial reign. So, but you could say this is the war that ushers in the millennial reign, or it could be at the end of the millennial reign. So I, I, I need to know what I, what I believe and why I believe it. And, and so you keep digging and struggling until you come to that point. And I finally have come to that point. So I'm going to try and share that with you this morning. And if you don't agree with me, I am fine with that. I don't, that doesn't bother me at all. Not because I'm arrogant and I'm going to hold my position, but because there are different ways to look at this. And, and I'm not going to be dogmatic about what I believe, but I believe what I believe. And I have reasons why I believe it, and I'm going to share those with you this morning. And you can either stay with me or say, nah, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And I'm okay with that. Um, so I thought about this for quite a while. And you try the best you can in your own mind to get rid of your presuppositions. You know, you try to, as much as you can, to be open, to be taught, and to learn, and to grow in your understanding. And that's difficult to do at best. Because there are certain things that you already think that in order to think something different, you've got to discard. Now, through my study of theology, I've discarded a lot of stuff that I was taught wrong in, in my early years or that I believed in my early years. I mean, I've discarded a ton of stuff. And I now have, for most of everything I believe, and if not everything, a biblical basis for why I believe it. And I could take you to the passages and then give you an explanation of it. Um, and so I'm trying to do that with these two chapters. It's not easy, to say the least. So I try to get rid of my presuppositions and just think, about this, and you remember that I've told you that um, certainly for the first 33 chapters of Ezekiel, Ezekiel writes in mostly chronological order, almost um, exclusively, except for I believe there are one or two times when he backtracks a year or two. But other than that, from chapter 1 through 33, which is all about the destruction of Israel and the destruction of all the nations around Israel by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. I mean, they're all detailed there for 33 chapters. Um, It's written in chronological order. And let me just show you this. Look at the very opening verses of Ezekiel. I just, because I want you to understand that this is the way he writes. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1, he says, Now it came about... In the thirtieth year, on the fifth day of the fourth month, while I was by the river Chebar, among the exiles, the heavens were open, and I saw visions of God. On the fifth of the month, in the fifth year of King Jehoachan's exile, the word of the Lord came expressly to Ezekiel the priest, son of Buzzai, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the river Chebar, and there the hand of the Lord came upon me. Now, that's pretty, pretty specific. And most people would, if you parse through this, when he says in the 30th year there, at the very beginning, 
He's talking about his 30th year, his birthday. He's 30 years old now. That's when priests in the Jewish tradition would begin to fill their priestly roles when they turn 30. And so this is, this is uh, Ezekiel's 30th year. But you notice he says it's in the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiakim. Well, I believe it's 597. Nebuchadnezzar came and he took Jehoiakim and all his, um, I guess it would be the people who served with him. Because five years previous, he had taken another wave, and that's when Daniel went into exile. And then five years or so later, Ezekiel goes into exile. And then five years later, Ezekiel gets this vision from God. Okay, so it's in the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. Now, turn all the way over, chapter 33. And this is where, I mean, all through this, he gives time frame references. And you can see them, this in the sixth year, then the eighth year, and the ninth year, and the tenth year. And it just keeps going. And it's written in chronological order. But you get over to chapter 33, where sudden, all of, at the end of it all, Ezekiel gets a message that Jerusalem has fallen, that it's been taken. And it's in verse 21. And notice the time frame reference. Now in the twelfth year of our exile, so that was the fifth year, now this is seven years later. In the twelfth year of our exile, in the fifth of the tenth month, the refugees from Jerusalem came to me saying, the city has been taken. So that's what he's prophesied about for 33 chapters. And all the nations around them also, who ultimately get destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar as well. Uh, Egypt not being for 30 more years, but it's in the prophecy of Ezekiel. And so um, Jerusalem's done. And so Ezekiel's prophecy about the destruction of, Ezekiel, of Jerusalem, which is the main focus, is done. So it changes. The whole tenor of the book changes as you get to chapter 34. And he begins to talk about the restoration of Israel. And he does that for chapters 34 through 37. The restoration of Israel, the salvation of the Jews the um, building of the cities, the uh, restoration of the waste places, all these things that we've seen detailed through Ezekiel. Now, I personally believe that he continues to write chronologically and that the, we don't know the time frame references because he doesn't give us those, but these things, I believe, happen sequentially. And, and so I have some reasons for that. I mean, he says all the cities will be filled like they were during the festivals. Remember that? which is packed to the gills with people. And then the very next chapter is the resurrection of the saints in the Valley of Dry Bones. Now, I think that just means, okay, how is he going to fill the cities? He's going to resurrect all these people and put them in the cities. And then he talks about the establishment of the Davidic covenant right after that, meaning that Christ is seated on his throne over all these throngs of people. It just makes sense to me that he's writing chronologically. I mean, at the very beginning of it, he talks about removing the leaders and dividing the fat sheep from the lean sheep. That would be at the beginning, right? He's not going to wait until the end to remove the leaders. He's going to do it first thing. And then he's going to call out those sheep that are not his and keep the ones that are. I mean, it just makes sense that it walks chronologically through the restoration of Israel. Now, you don't have to believe that, but I just think he just continues to write sequentially. He's, he's, he's done it all the way through 33 chapters, so I think 34 through 37 are sequential. All right, then you come to 38 and 39 where the war is, right? Well, I personally believe that's sequential. Now, that could still be at the beginning of the millennium or at the end. We don't know because all this activity that we've seen in chapters 34 through 37 is at the beginning. It's the establishment of the millennial reign. So you get to chapter 37, uh, 38 and 39 where you have this huge war and you have to make decisions. Is this at the beginning or is this at the end? Is this the war of tribulation at the end of the seven years or is this at the end of the millennial reign? And so you continue to struggle with those thoughts and what you think is going on <laughs> and um, you there, there's a couple of things I want you to consider 
okay? Because this is the thought process that I went through to try and come to some conclusions. And this chapter, at the end of 39, those last five verses, if it is sequential, seem to be out of place, seem to be out of order. Because he's talking again about, in a large picture, the restoration of Israel. So it just seems to be, if he's written sequentially, that seems to be out of place. Seems like it should have been at the beginning. Because he says some of the same things he said before. So that's the passage that kind of gnaws at you and that you have to think through. So consider a couple of things with me. Um, if chapters 34 through 39, which includes the war, are um, in consecutive order, then the war would clearly happen after the restoration of Israel. Because that's the first thing he does. If it's sequential, if it is sequential, then this comes at the end, not at the beginning. And so it means it happens after Israel has been restored. Okay, and, and, and I think there's some language that says that, and I'll show it to you here in a minute. Um, and then also consider that chapters 40 through 48, I know we haven't looked at it, we haven't studied it, but I'll promise you it doesn't give you any events. What it does is it describes what the millennial kingdom looks like during that time period. Because the first three chapters or so, um, starting in, in chapter 40, are measurements. I mean literal measurements and walking through what the temple of God looks like. I mean, as a man with a measuring rod, I guess we can't get that gone. He's <laughs> going to pull the plug. Um, thank you. Yeah, you have a man with a measuring rod who goes through for three chapters and measures stuff. I mean, every single gate, every single thickness of wall, how high things are, um, what the cherubim look like, what the inscribed uh, inscriptions on the walls look like. I mean, measures everything and details everything in this temple. And that goes on for three chapters. So there's no event, it's just a description. And then after you get through that, it goes through what the Levitical priests do to worship God. Details the sacrifices that will be done, how often they're to be done, um, who does them, um, where do they get the animals from, all these details, but there's no events happening. It's just a picture of this is what the priests do. So you have a description of the temple, a description of what the priests do and who does it, and where do they get the animals and all of that. And then you have, and finally, a description of how the land was divided. And that's it. So it's all descriptive. Chapters 40 through 49 are just, 48? 48. Are just descriptions of what the millennial kingdom looks like. So and consider, you've got 33 chapters of detail about Israel's going to be, uh, Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. Then in chapter 33, you get the conclusion of that. Then the tenor of the book changes, and he begins to write about the restoration of Israel. And that goes all the way through the war. And then he says, oh, and this is what the millennial reign looks like. This is what's going on in Israel during the millennial reign. We get pictures of other places in like Isaiah and Jeremiah, but here in, in Ezekiel, you only get what it looks like in Jerusalem, really, and then how the land is divided. But they're all descriptive. So you got all this action, chapter 1 all the way through chapter 39, you have all this action. And then in 40 through 47 or 8, I can't ever remember that. I think it's 8. Um, you have descriptions. Okay, so that's significant to me that the events quit happening. So he quits writing chronologically because there are no events to put in chronological order. So at the beginning of that, you have these five verses that talk about, in a big picture, the restoration of Israel. 
So what do I think that is? I think that's either an introduction to the last eight chapters, nine chapters, or it's a summary statement of what's already happened. It's not in chronological order. It's kind of like Ezekiel writing all these 39 chapters and he stands back and he says, this is what God has done. And he summarizes in five verses. It doesn't go on for a long time. He writes in large pictures. He doesn't give any details. He simply says, God drove them out of their land. God brought them back to their land. He is now their God. He has blessed them. And that's it. Then you go on. So I think it's either a summary of the first 39 chapters are, you know, and these, these chapter divisions and, and verses that we have are not in the original manuscripts. Men decided where to put these breaks. You always have to remember that. So either it should have just ended five verses earlier in chapter 39, and then this is an introduction to the description of what the millennial kingdom looks like, because he has to say, well, God restored Israel, and this is what it looks like. Or it's a stand back and here in grand picture is what God has now done through these 39 chapters. That's what I believe these five verses are. That they're not something that he's trying to put a time frame on or anything. He's just summarizing or introducing one or the other. And I'll show you why I believe that. Because I think there are a couple of other passages. Now, I, I will admit that some of those that we looked at last time um, have some strength to them. They make sense. They're, you can make the argument. I can make the argument um, that this war is at the beginning of the millennial reign. And I'm not going to do this this week, but I'll do it in brief next week. We'll look at this war as it's detailed, and then we'll look at the war that's detailed in Revelation 19 and see if there are any similarities or if they're different. And if there are similarities, then we'll admit it, and it could be the same war. If there are differences, then we'll admit it, and maybe they're not the same war. Probably not. Okay? So we'll look at that next time. But for now, I want to show you a couple of passages that I believe give strength to the argument that this happens at the end of the millennial reign. If that's true then from the conclusion of chapter 37 to the beginning of chapter 38, a thousand years passes. Okay, Because 37 is all about the restoration of Israel and they live securely in the land and there are no walls around their cities and they don't fear anybody and they're blessed because the land produces a lot and Jesus Christ is seated on the throne at the end of chapter 37. The Davidic kingdom is established we're in the millennium and Christ is ruling. And then all of a sudden in 38, you have this war. And if it happens at the end of the millennial reign, then there's a thousand years from the close of chapter 37 to the beginning of 38. That would be absolutely fine in the way that Ezekiel has written. There's no, there's no conflict there. He, I mean, he's told us what the millennial kingdom, he will tell us what it looks like. And so it could just go on like that for a thousand years. And then at the end, you have this war. So there's nothing that that contradicts by, by thinking that way. But you have to recognize a thousand years has now passed. And we're now at the end of the millennial reign. And I'll show you why I believe that. There, there are a couple of passages that I think are stronger than anything that we've looked at that say this is at the end of the millennial reign. Chapter 38. And verse 7. And this is God speaking to Gog, who is, I believe, that's a title and speaks of the leader of those who come against uh, Israel, Gog of Magog. He's, he's the ruler over those lands. And those lands are to the north, uh, up by the Black Sea and further north. And, and there are other people who join him. We've looked at it. The guys out of um, uh, Eastern Africa come. Ethiopia and, P and Cush come. Egypt does not. Um, those come through Egypt to get there. So they're kind of coming from the west. And then you've got Persia, which is over in the same land, the land of the Chaldeans. 
um, where Ezekiel is writing this from, which would be to the east. And then you've got these tribes coming from the north. And they all come together against Israel. And he's detailed all that for us in this war. We look, we've looked at that. Um, we'll walk through those details a little bit more. But in the context of Ezekiel, writing chronologically most of the time, if not all of the time, you come to verse 7 of chapter 38. And he says, talking to Gog, be prepared and prepare yourself you and all your companies that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days, you will be summoned. In the latter years, you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered for many, from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which has been a continual waste, but its people were brought out from the nations and they are living securely, all of them. So speaking to Gog, he talks about Israel living securely, and you be prepared to bring your armies after many days in the last days. Now we've looked at this. The latter days means the millennial reign. And he says, after many days in the millennial reign, then be prepared. So I think that's a pretty strong indication. It's the only places you read through chapters 38 and 39 that you get a time frame reference of any kind. Nowhere else is there a time frame. He'll say in the last days, but that just means during the millennial kingdom. And that's a thousand years. But this one says after many days in the millennial kingdom. That's significant. And so many days, I believe, is a thousand years. And he's telling Gog, at the end of the millennial reign, be prepared. Because I'm going to bring you against Israel. Okay? Now, it's hard to think about that during the millennial reign, or maybe right after the millennial reign, that Satan is released, and he deceives the nations again, and they all gather to come against Israel. And we'll see their motive is to plunder Israel and to take their gold and silver and to destroy them as people. I mean, that's clearly detailed as their motive. It's hard to think how that could happen after a thousand-year millennial reign of Jesus Christ. But again, Satan has been bound for those thousand years, and then he's released. The great deceiver is released again. And by the way, we don't know if this is at the end of the millennial reign, or if you go over to Revelation chapter 20 where it says, in just three short verses, that Satan is released and deceives the nations and they come against Israel again and God destroys them. We don't know how long that is. There's no time frame reference given. Is that 100 years? Is that 200 years? Is it one year? We don't know. How long does it take for Satan to rebuild the deception at, to the point where these people are willing to go up to Jerusalem, where they've been parading for a thousand years to honor Christ and go against him? Really? So it could be, it could take a while. We don't know. Scripture doesn't detail it. It just says after the thousand years. doesn't give us a time frame reference for how long it takes for Satan to build those forces. Right. Into rebellion against their creator who is reigning. That, that is something you just got to pause and think about. Right. Well, and you have to think about this. There's no question that salvation has come to Israel. I mean, that's clearly detailed in chapter 36. But it doesn't say about salvation anywhere else. So it could be that the world is still full of unbelieving people who produce more unbelieving people. And nothing in the scripture says that all those people who parade before Christ and give him honor truly worship him. It never says that. So you could have a bunch of unbelievers who are made to parade before Christ to give him honor and to recognize who he is, but not to worship him, not to know him as a believer knows him. Nothing in scripture says that that is that these people are believers. I think it 
creation in Genesis 1 through 3. Right. But it's fascinating to me, if you look carefully, Paul makes it very clear, Eve was deceived. Right. Adam was not deceived. No, he willingly. He willfully did what he did. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, and it, it, it's startling to try and think about some of these things. Uh, it, on one hand, it's fascinating. On the other hand, it's fearful. Um, and, and you have to, I have to come to conclusions. You may not have that need. I have that need that I need to be able to explain what I believe from the scriptures so that I can have a clear picture and continue to march forward. Okay, and I'm at that point. Um, so I think after many days, in the context of sequential writing by Ezekiel, means at the end of the millennial reign. After many days, you know, a thousand years for 365 days a year. It's a long time. Okay, and you notice that he says they come against people who live securely in their land. Well, if Israel had only been there, if we're at the very beginning of the millennial reign, I don't think they feel too secure. But after a thousand years of no wars and no one coming against them and no one profaning the name of God, I think you feel pretty secure. I go on. So it says they live securely in the land. So I think that's another time frame hint for us. Okay, now there's another passage that I think is even stronger. You come to chapter 38, the very opening verses, and you see the, the address of this vision. Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshach, and Tubal. And of course, we, we said that means the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, I think is what's really being said here. And thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, and then he talks about turning him. So we have Gog of Magog. And we talked about it. The only other place in Scripture where you find the title or the name of Gog in the Old Testament is in 1 Chronicles chapter 4 where some of the ancestry is being given. And it doesn't seem to be significant. It's just one name above, uh, among many names that are given. And you know, that's what Chronicles is, what? so-and-so begot so-and-so begot so-and-so, and it goes on for the whole history of Israel. So it doesn't seem to be that guy. But the, the term Magog is found two places in Scripture in the Old Testament that say basically the same thing. You find it in 1 Chronicles chapter 1, and you also find it over in um, Genesis chapter 10. And they say the same thing. And what it's detailing is the grandchildren of Noah. So these are the sons of Japheth, who was Noah's son. So these are the grandchildren. And you have one there named Gog, and, um, or Magog. And he has other brothers. And most people that I've read even those who disagree with what I say, would say those are the people who settled in the north up by the Black Sea. It's what the land was known as. You have uh, extra-biblical text that say that's what the land was known as. It was called Magog. And so that's the only other place in the Old Testament that you'll find it. And I mean, you'll find it in Genesis 10 and 1 Chronicles 1, the children of Noah, grandchildren of Noah, and they're detailed there. And Chronicles, of course, is just a recount of everything that happened uh, historically. Who, who, whose children was who? And so, of course, Noah would be there and his children. All right. But there's a passage in Revelation chapter 20. The only other place in Scripture where you find the name Gog and Magog is in Revelation chapter 20. And so let's look there. And it gives time frame reference without any question. This is not obscure. 
This is very, very clear when this time is in the grand plan of God. You know, Satan is bound at the beginning of chapter 20, and then you keep on reading in chapter 20, verse 7. When the thousand years are completed, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from heaven and devoured them. And then the devil was thrown into the lake of fire. Where, by the way, the Antichrist and the, and the false prophet are still there. And it's been a thousand years. Which is one of the strongest indications of scripture that there is no annihilation. There is eternal life even for the unbelieving in the lake of fire, which is terrifying to think about, but nevertheless is detailed in Scripture. So, but you see right there in verse 7, when the thousand years are completed, that's at the end of the millennial reign. The millennial reign has endured for a thousand years, and then you have Satan being released and coming out to deceive them, and you have Gog and Magog. The only other place in Scripture that that term is used. So is it just a coincidence that John uses those names? I think that would be a hard, long stretch. And by the way, John would have been familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures. He would have known what Ezekiel had written. It would have been one of the scrolls that he would have had. So he knows these names, Gog and Magog. And it's what he sees in his vision. Remember, this is all the vision of John. This is all given to John um, by God. And so he's just writing what he sees. And he just so happens to use the terms Gog and Magog. I don't think so. I think he's saying exactly what Ezekiel said. And only those two guys say it. And they're both at the end of the millennial reign. So I think there's pretty strong evidence, both by the time frame reference given in chapter 38 and by the names and the use of those names in Scripture to indicate this war is not at the beginning of the millennial reign. It's at the end. It is the war of Revelations 27 through 10. It's the same war. And Ezekiel wrote about it thousands of years before John did. That's not true. Ezekiel wrote in 600, and John wrote in the first century, so they're six, 700 years removed from one another. And now here we are, 2,000 years removed from them. And the millennial reign has to go on for 1,000 years. So from the time when Ezekiel wrote this to the time when this war actually takes place is at least 3,700 years, which is startling to think about. And it will happen exactly as Ezekiel wrote it would. And I believe it's at the end of the millennial reign. And I think I can make the biblical argument for that without I've made this morning. And, and to say it's any other time, I think you would be hard-pressed to find evidence in the scriptures to make that argument in a strong way. But I think the argument for the end of the millennial reign is pretty strong. So that's my conclusion. I believe this war is the war at the end of the millennial reign. So I'm, I'm relieved, because a month ago I didn't know. I was struggling. But now I'm, I'm not going to struggle with this anymore unless someone can present a good argument to me that it's not at the end of the millennial reign. So I'm, I'm open to that. I'll receive that. I'll study it. I'll look at the details. But if it doesn't rise from Scripture, then you're just speculating. Sure. Of chapter 20 of Revelation. Yes. I, I think it's important. <laughs> what strikes me is, and Tina and I talked about this a little on the way down, how important is it right now that we have a proper biblical worldview of what the scriptures mean when it says the world? Right. The world will hate you because it hated me. Right. It's interesting to me with that 
see this just cycle of humanity rising up in hostility against its creator from, yeah. from beginning to end. But right here you have verse 8, and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of earth. And then the ESV has a comma, insert Gog and Magog, comma. Right. As if here's another label for this system of the world right. that has been from the very beginning. So to me, this is a worldview that says, once again, the world during the millennial reign is coming against its creator, reigning with his saints. Right. And if that doesn't reveal the absolute Right, right, and, and and it's been true from the beginning. You know, I mean, it, we don't know the time frame from when God created Adam and Eve to the time when they sinned. We don't know that. People speculate about that. I'm unwilling to do that because the scriptures don't say anything about that. I just like I'm unwilling at the very beginning of scripture to speculate that millions of years took place in Genesis one. Because the scripture doesn't say that, and so I'm unwilling to go there. Um, I believe in a newer, in a, a short earth, you know, um, uh, newly created earth. You know, we're at maybe year 6,000 now, something like that. Uh, friends who believe in new earth uh, say it's 10,000 years, and I say, well, not according to scripture, because, I mean, we do get the historical number of years from Adam to his children, to his children, to his children. And the only place where I've found a gap is in the children of Jacob where you don't know exactly how old Judah was when his son was born. That's the only gap that I find anywhere in, in the cr chronology of the years that lead up to Jesus Christ. That's the only gap I can find is Judah. We don't know how old he was when his first child was born. It's so interesting. We know how old his brothers were when their first children were born, but we don't know how old he was. But you can speculate, and maybe you're off by 100 years at the most. And so I, I believe in 6,000 years. It's just where I'm at. And I haven't heard an argument yet that can convince me it's longer than that. But that's just me, because uh, the numbers have to work for me. Um, it's just the way I'm geared. And so I think, um, and I've come to conclusions about Ezekiel 38 and 39. Um, I don't expect you to be there with me. I don't demand that. Um, I've just shown you why I believe that, which I owe to you as the guy who stands at the front of the room and babbles all the time. I mean, I owe that to you that you know where I come from. Go ahead. You ask a question, Keith. That. Yeah. They. Could be. Um, we'll look at chapter two and fourteen. You know, fourteen is. Uh, uh, I think it's given in the chronology of Ezekiel that it's not at the end of the ages, and just like chapter two is given, because you got time frame references all through those first thirty-three chapters mm -hmm. that are given. And so things are happening sequentially. He's writing sequentially. And so if you're in chapter 2 or chapter 14, you're before chapter 33, which we know is 12 years after he began to write the prophecy. Because he details it. Year 5, year 17. So we know that. So you have to decide, is he writing chronologically or is he not? Because it is definitely true that God a couple of times supernaturally helps destroy the people of the earth in Ezekiel. That, that definitely happened. And he does it again here in chapters 38 and 39. So um, we, have to talk, we have to look at that. And is it in the time frame references that Ezekiel gives? I think the first 33 chapters are just 12 years. And everything that happens in there is in those 12 years. Because, he, I mean... I don't know how many times, I want to say it's in the order of 10. He gives time frame references through those 33 chapters. Assuming that, then chapter 14 would be talking about 
Yes, it's possible, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and and I would and I would say it can be taken either way or both. That it could be talking about a world system, or it could be talk, and and at the same time talking about individuals. I think that's possible. Right. It's nothing, nothing different now than it was in the time of Christ. I mean, we, they had just as much uh, idolatry and just as much, uh, you know, um, unclean things as we do. They were just different. But the same cycle. Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God. This just happened to be a case where he's literally there and they're still not going to honor him as God. Right. Until the end of the war. For a thousand years, then Satan is released, so we don't know what happens. Right. I mean, we don't know if it's a year or if it's a couple hundred years that he deceives the nations. We don't know. And so you presuppositions again, right? Got to discard your presuppositions. If the scripture doesn't say it, then why do you believe it? It's one of the, it doesn't say any time frame reference at all. And so it's just not there. You know, and, and we think things, but that doesn't mean they're right. And so presuppositions, you have to discard them as you study the scripture. Thanks for your time.